Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come to worship you and to hear your holy word. So, Father, we, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, as we open up the pages of this book called Malachi, that, Lord God, that uh, even though we are so far removed from that day and from the things that were happening in it, Lord, um, you have much to teach us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would just open up our, our minds and our eyes and our heart, that we would receive all that you have for us here this morning. Holy Spirit. Be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt like God was unfair or unjust? Have you ever been angry with God because it seems like He doesn't hear or doesn't care? about your situation. Now, most of us would probably not want to admit that if we ever did. But many of us have thought that. Many of us have experienced things in our life that have caused us to question if God is even there. And if He is there, does He really care? And if He cares... Is he able to do something about it? And if he is, then why doesn't he address my situation? Well, in our world, as in Malachi's day, it seemed as if the wicked were prospering and that the righteous were struggling, if not suffering. And that's going to that's gonna raise a few questions in people's minds. And today, I think we're tempted to do the, the same thing. But as we come to the end of chapter 3, we, we come to yet another oracle of the Lord. We come to the sixth and last oracle in the book of Malachi. And this disputation really parallels the fourth disputation that we uh, read in chapter 2, verse 17, through uh, chapter 3, verse 6. You know, Israel has already questioned God's love. They've already questioned his justice. Now they question the value or the worth of serving God. And that only stands to reason. If you don't believe God is good, if you don't believe he is just, then why would you serve him? You could almost hear them say, does God really make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked? Does he really judge those who deserve judgment? Does he reward those who are faithful? And I think that for us, I think it's easy to think that God is AWOL um, when we see all the injustice in the world. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest arguments that people have against Christianity is that they can't conceive of a good God when they see all the evil in the world, when they see all the suffering in the world. And just as a side note, it was that very argument that actually led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. His great intellect, his greatest argument was, how in the world can there be a good God when you look at the world in which we live? 
And then he asked the question is, why did I think the world ought to be any different than it is? If God doesn't exist, then just accept it. That's the way that it is. And he says, it seems as if I understood that something has gone wrong with the world. And he says, you don't know to call something crooked if you don't know what, what straight looks like. And the reason why I bring that up is because this Wednesday I'm actually going to go see a movie uh, called The Most Reluctant Convert. It's a limited showing that's out, but it's put out by the Fellowship of Performing Arts. You can uh, go to cslewisthemovie.com to learn about it. Hopefully, they'll bring it back and you'll get a chance to see it. But we can think that God is, is AWOL when we see injustice in the world, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't see. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It doesn't mean that um, justice will not be served. It simply means that God's timetable is not our own. God operates on a, on a different timetable. You know, we want God to execute justice immediately. We want it now. But as I have said before, be careful what you ask for. Because we are all guilty of injustice. We are all sinners deserving of God's holy wrath. So when we clamor for justice, don't exclude yourself from that. I think rather we ought to rejoice that God has been so long-suffering that he's put up with us for so long that he hasn't wiped us off the face of the earth already. I think sometimes our, our misguided sense of justice clouds our view of God's mercy. It causes us to forget how merciful and gracious he is. See, God, the truth is, doesn't desire that the evil prosper, that the wicked prosper, but neither does he delight in the destruction of the wicked. Rather, it is his desire that they come to repentance and live so we need to remember something as we think about this idea of justice and, and whether or not God is, is truly just is that, first of all, we need to remember we're not God. We're not omniscient. We don't have all the facts. We don't see the entire picture. Only God does. And in our text this morning, God is going to assure the wicked and the righteous, that one day he will deal with injustice and he will reward the faithful. If you want something to hang your hat on today, it's this. That the day of the Lord will bring both judgment and exoneration. For those who fear the Lord, they will be welcomed as God's treasured possession, and those who don't will become stubble. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be looking um, at just a few verses here through chapter 4, uh, verse 2 this morning. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, and I'll put it up on screen as well. But this is what the Lord God says. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? 
you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking uh, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed? Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape? See, the sixth disposition begins with Israel's self-centered and misguided complaint that it is vain to serve God. That it's useless to serve God. In other words, where's the reward? Where's the reward? What's in it for me? Or perhaps, I don't get anything out of it. You know, I hear a lot of church people talk like that. They, they, they base their walk with God. They base their commitments to the people of God on what they get out of it. And if they don't get something out of it, then they're gone to look for what they hope is greener pasture somewhere else. They think that it is vain to serve the Lord. There's nothing in it for them. There's no reward. Other people might get rewards, but I don't get a reward. And I think if, if we think about this, it really re reveals the, 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 the self-centered mindset of people. The, it, it's the sin nature. It's all about me. And unfortunately, I think some well-meaning church leaders help perpetuate this. And I don't know if I can really explain it the way that I, I kind of see it in my head, but, but I think for many people, we have a low view of God's word. We, we, we feel like in proclaiming the gospel and, and in our various ministries and even in our, our sermons and, and messages and studies that, you know, people just aren't interested in the things of God. And, and so we need to dress it up. We need to make it look good. We need to be relevant. We need to address people's what we call felt needs. And, and I think it's well-meaning, but I think what we forget is that the gospel is offensive. The cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jew. It's foolishness to the Gentile. The world does not desire the things of God. God has to remove the veil. God has to open our eyes, grant us repentance and the gift of faith so that we can respond to him. And no matter how cute you are, no matter how hip you are, no matter how cool the light show is, the instrumentation, the vocalists, the hot topic preaching, that does not remove the veil. We are born again by the imperishable word of God. And that's why preaching is at the forefront of the church's ministry. It's not all there is. 
But that was what the apostles were called to. When they had the, the issue of the, the widows being overlooked and they appointed godly men to take over that responsibility, they did so because they said, we must devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. The primacy of the word. And so we, we ought not kid ourselves that, that we can improve upon what God has already said. We need to be faithful in our proclamation to it. Because what you win people with, you win them too. You know, you can put on a good show. You can draw a crowd. You can tickle people's ears. You can, you can get them to come. But if they're coming because of those things, you better keep giving them those things because they won't stay for long if you don't. No wonder so many people within the church have a consumer mentality. It's because we've been feeding it. Even gospel presentations. Now, I haven't looked at recent tracks, but I mean, for a long time, many of the tracks that were out there didn't even mention repentance in it. It started out with things like, you know, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true, but do you see what the appeal is to? It's, it's hey, come to God because of what he can do for you. He, he can give you a good life. He can make you a happy life. You can have purpose. You can have meaning. And all of that's true. But the focus is on you. It's, it's on the person. It's not, we don't come to God because he's good. We come to God because he's God. And if we don't, we will be separated from him for all of eternity. That's the truth. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, the church is like a bank or a home. You don't get anything out of it unless you put something into it. We serve God because it's the right thing to do, not because we're rewarded for our service. We shall be rewarded, but that is not our main motive. So the Lord here accuses the people of speaking against him, an accusation, of course, that they dispute. And they respond, well, how have we spoken against you? See, what they're really saying is, God, you're wrong. We, we haven't said that. We, we've said no such thing. And they're speaking harshly of the Lord. They were, in fact, calling God a liar. I mean, if you look back at verses 10 and 12, right, you see some wonderful promises there. And what they were saying is that, God, your promises aren't true. Where's the blessing that you promised us? What is the point or the profit in serving you and obeying you and mourning over our sin when we look around and we see all the evildoers getting away with murder and escaping your justice? Why should we even try to serve you? There's no advantage in it to keeping your commandments. To, now, to me, this feels a little whiny. You know, the wah, wah, wah. God, it, 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 you aren't fair. This isn't fair. Give us what we deserve. Uh, be careful with that one. They want God to judge the wicked. 
but they fail to see their own wickedness. Rather than marveling that God has spared them, not wiped them off the face of the earth, they complain that God has, has not given other people what they deserve. They judged others, but they failed to judge themselves properly. And what's more, they judged God. They were judging his character. They were judging his motives, his wisdom, and his will. But then, like so many passages in Scripture, we get a but. Verse 16. But, or then, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. As is always the case, God has a godly, faithful remnant of people, and they spoke to one another. And just as God heard the grumbling and the complaining and the charges against him by this one group of people, he also hears what this other group of people, those who fear him, were saying to one another. But what exactly does it mean to fear the Lord? I think what it means is that we hold God in high regard. We are in awe of him. We rever and honor God for who he is. We treat him with the respect that he deserves. And we are in awe of not only who he is, but what he has done, what he is doing, and what he can do. This kind of fear is not the terror of God. It is a reverence for God. Now, we don't know what they said to each other. But it's interesting that the scripture here, it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Why, why even mention that? And I think we can imagine what was happening. These people understood that they were in the minority. They understood that the, they were a small group of people. And, you know, when I was living in, in Massachusetts, um, serving up there, uh, in Foxborough, where I lived, 90% of our community was unchurched. Not unsaved, unchurched. And most of those folks went to the Catholic Church. And it was hard to find a Christian in New England. And when, you, were, you, know, you know that. And, and, and when you did, you held on for dear life. Why? Because you needed the encouragement. You needed to know you weren't alone in the midst of this godless environment that you lived. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. That these people came together and they realized we need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to build up each other. We need to uplift each other and be there for one another. And I think in addition to praying for each other, in addition to giving words of encouragement, no doubt, no doubt they spoke God's word to one another. They would recite 
sections of Scripture. And it made me think about Deuteronomy chapter 6 where the Lord, you know, uh, commands his people. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Folks, one of the best things we can do for each other is to remind each other what God has already said. That necessitates that we be people of the word, that we're in God's word, that we know God's word, that we can recite God's word, that we can paraphrase God's word, that we can use his holy word to encourage one another. The Lord heard them. He paid attention to them. And as a result, a book of remembrance was written before him. And in it were the names of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, books of remembrance were not uncommon in the ancient world. They were oftentimes written and kept in the royal uh, archives. If you recall from our study of the book of Esther, remember Mordecai, his name and his deed was written in the chronicles of the king, right? And what did he do? Well, he saved the life of the king. And that act was recorded. And then one day, just happened to be, the king decides, I want to hear from that book, right? And they pull out the book and they read that part of it where it mentions Mordecai. And Mordecai is then rewarded because his name was recorded, his deed was recorded in the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. Now, God may have a literal book in heaven somewhere. He might, but it's not because he needs it. <laughs> Unlike the kings of this world, God has perfect recall. He knows everything. He remembers everything. And what's more, he won't forget so he knows the deeds of the righteous and the wicked. And he will repay. Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. See, we, we can get discouraged quite easily, can't we? we? We often do. We get discouraged because we're in the minority, because we feel like our voices aren't being heard. We get discouraged um, because sometimes we look around and we go, there aren't enough servants. There aren't enough people serving. We get discouraged when we, well, we don't have enough money coming in, can't pay the bills, when attendance is low, when the wicked seem to prosper. But a day will come when God will reward the faithful and he will make them his treasured possession. I looked that up in, in the scriptures and several times in the Old Testament especially. 
It refers to God's people as his treasured possessions, possession. In Exodus chapter 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now notice back in Malachi that it also says that, that God will spare them as a man spares his son. Now there's something emotive about this language, something warm and genuine. It, it speaks of a relationship between a father and a son. But before God can spare anyone. You have to understand this. He had to sacrifice his one and only son so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into God's family, that we would be recreated in God's image. God did not spare his only son so that he could spare us. That ought to prick every one of our hearts. That ought to make us understand how, how loved we really are. That God would go to such great lengths that he would sacrifice so much so that we would be called the sons and daughters of God. In that day, God will make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves him and the one who does not. As I said earlier, that day, that day, we will see that God will bring justice, but he will also exonerate those who fear him. And those who fear him will become his treasured possession. Everyone else will become stubble. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor nor branch. So Malachi is now returning to that theme of the day of the Lord. And on that great and terrible day, God's justice will be fully revealed. For the wicked, it will be unbearable. They will be set ablaze. Ablaze. They will burn with fire. It, it will be like an oven. And the arrogant and the evildoers will be reduced to stubble. Now, he's not talking about five o'clock shadow. You know what stubble is? Now, stubble is not really a word we use too much today, is it? It's chaff. It's straw. It's worthless husks. But in the context, what the point is, is that these people are going to become combustible material. They will be burned up. 
leave them neither root nor branch, speaks to the complete exclusion of the wicked from the kingdom of God. They will be like a tree that's been totally consumed. Branches are gone. Roots are gone. They've been dissolved. And the people, the people, in light of all of this, it's just amazing that they foolishly failed to, to understand that his arrival was not going to be a time of celebration. It was going to be a time of darkness. Remember back a couple weeks ago when Eric was preaching in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. This is what we, we read. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, that speaks of the refining process of God's people. But that's not all the day of the Lord was about. In verse 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The prophet Amos makes it very clear in chapter 5. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? See, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord, not understanding that it would be a day of darkness, not a day of celebration for many. What would that day be like for you? Would it, will it, would it be, a, if, if, if the Lord were to come back in your lifetime, will it be a day of celebration? Or will it be a day of darkness? Will you be reduced to stubble? His righteous judgment is as pure and as piercing as the sun. And for most, it's going to be a frightful and terrifying day. Let's conclude with verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now here the sun is a metaphor for God himself. Now, as you know, the, the sun is hotter than any oven. It's a massive ball of fire that will destroy all who defy its power. But it is also a source of life, a source of light, 
and a source of warmth. And we are told that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And no, God is not a big bird. That's another metaphor for God's care and for his protection. Now, what's interesting here, and I don't know how far I would press this, but what's interesting here is God is clearly speaking of bringing healing with him, and he mentions his wings. And the word translated wings is the Hebrew word kanaf, and it's used to describe the wings of angels as well as the wings of birds. But it is also translated in Scripture as skirt, corner, edge, end, hem, fold. You go, well, that is, that's odd, that's weird. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 27, we see that word appear as Samuel turned to go away. Saul sees the kanaf of his robe, the skirt of his robe and tore it. Or when David had an opportunity to kill King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, it says, then David arose and stealthily cut off the kanaf, the corner or the edge of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay, well, that's an interesting word study here. Here's where it gets really interesting, is that this word in the imagery that would have been apparent to the people of Malachi's day, in, in that it brings healing, um, goes hand in hand with a belief that was present in ancient Israel that the hem of a garment that belonged to a righteous man had the ability to heal the sick. I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but it looks as if that if, 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 if you were a righteous man, your hem, your end, your corner, your edge of your clothing, your pants, your robe, whatever, had healing properties. And then I thought about this in the Gospels. I remembered the story of the woman who had the issue of blood. And so I looked it up, and in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, it says, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If I may only touch his garment, I shall be made well. And it just put a different spin on that text for me. Now the healing spoken of here is clearly spiritual healing. God promises to heal them of their sin and to restore them to right relationship with Him. So what we see is that the day of the Lord will not only bring intense heat and darkness, but healing and restoration. Now verse 2 also says this, that they will go out leaping like calves from a stall. Now some of you who have been to our home, know that we have a little dog, um, Nicholas. He's a white ball of fur, weighs about six, seven pounds. He thinks he's a guard dog. So whenever anybody comes over to the house, we have to put him in his kennel. 
And of course, he barks for a while, but eventually settles down. But then when people leave, we have to let him out, right? And it never fails. You open up that kennel, boom, he jets out of there. He runs to the front door barking. And then when he realizes, I can't see out that door, he goes to the back door and he's running there. And then he's just kind of like going all over the place. And, and how many times we have chased him in circles around our house. He gets so excited. I'm free. I'm free. You know, and he's just running around like crazy. Well, in the wintertime in Israel, they would actually take their calves and put them in stalls. And there they would keep them all winter long. So imagine their excitement when winter is finally open, over and they open the gates, the doors to the stalls, and the calves are released. That's the picture that God is giving us of what it's going to be like when he returns. We're going to be like Nicholas. We're going to be like calves that are released from the stall. That is if we fear the Lord. If we don't give up following Him, serving Him. If we want to experience the joy that this text talks about, we, we must learn to not only fear the Lord, but we need to repent of any any selfish meism. What's in it for me? And we need to start thinking, what can I give to others? How can I serve the Lord? How can I serve others? God is worthy of our service. We do not serve him in vain as they thought, but we also don't serve him in order to get from God. Our motive is love. We serve God because we love him. God does, in fact, make a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. And one day, everyone will see that distinction. But until that day, this is my charge to you. Let's be like those who feared the Lord and spoke to one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's build up one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's recite scripture to one another. And as we've done already this morning, let's sing to one another as we sing to God. So the next time you're wondering if it is vain to serve God, if it's worth the effort, just remember that the day of the Lord will bring both judgment and exoneration. Those who fear the Lord will become his treasured possession. And those who don't will become stubble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word to us. Lord, although it is a heavy word, um, Lord, we know that it is your desire that the wicked repent and live it is your desire for us to serve you wholeheartedly because we love you. And Lord, we love because you first loved us. So Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts and help us as we seek to encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near. In Jesus' name, amen.